The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now, leave a message, they'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. There you can access old shows and as well ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Good morning, Good Scott. Morning. Virtually Scott, see you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're we're in this we're in the middle of uh, an ongoing lockdown here. Some new restrictions uh, announced uh, this week in regard to uh, they want you to stay at home. They're they're trying to to contain the COVID nineteen virus. Does that affect finances in any way? Well, it. it it's been it's interesting that there was actually a report that I had heard about people planning to uh, save more and uh, in the sense that they where they were used to maybe spending all their disposable income and that they're now realizing, you know what, I can still be OK and not spend it all. So they're uh, revamping their plans and building in a little more savings than uh, than they would have otherwise. So that was an interesting little twist. And, and that kind of goes with you know, how a lot of people are working from home now and used to commute. And when things kind of get back to a new normal, the new normal may be that they work at home for part of the week and drive to work the other, or fly to work, depending where they go. The other part, and this uh, savings mode, as you mentioned, Andy, might now say, okay, we, we've developed a habit. And habits are, saving is a, is a habit that people create. And maybe the new normal will be more savings and for hopefully less debt. Well, and with more savings, usually comes more financial confidence, and uh, and I think it's a nice sleep at night factor. I think, uh, well. Absolutely. Are you are you concerned either one of you at all with um, you know they're they're announcing that essential services uh, basically um, uh, if you're not essential you're closed down by eight o'clock. Uh, uh, they're obviously trying to really restrict what's going on, although there is no certain curfew or anything like that, but just sort of a stay-at-home order. Are you concerned that will slow things down even more? Uh, personally, I'm I really didn't think it made too much difference because whether they made it till 8 o'clock, people will just do it in between those hours. I didn't realize that you could actually go to these places after 8 o'clock anyway. So to, for, for me personally, and what I've noticed is, yeah, it's, it's, it's limited, uh, but people are working around. Of course, the, the haircuts and some of those non-essential areas aren't going to, that doesn't change for anybody. And the essential services, yeah, they just reduce the hours a bit it might actually add a bit more congestion during those hours. Mm. So it's, we'll, we'll, uh, I think most people are being very responsible, doing their best, having a lot of home deliveries, and not hitting the stores if they have to, and particularly the elderly are not frequently, and they are definitely um, maybe you know, changing their habits and having their kids perhaps setting up um, how to do online orders if they weren't really acquainted mm-hmm. to that before. So you're seeing a training of the population, <laughs> regardless of age, and it's uh, fine. People are actually saying, I've talked to a number of people, you know, it wasn't that bad. I've had a, a number of deliveries, and I'm, I'm kind of liking not having to go in yeah. the grocery store. No, it's pretty convenient. And I, you know, Don and I will always talk about having a comprehensive financial plan, and when you're thinking about a long-term financial plan, 
what we're going through right now is just part of the, you know, the, 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 the ebb and the flow of, of everyone's financial life and their and their retirement as well. So I think in the context of long term, um, it won't make much difference. But uh, really, the biggest stress is things short term financial decisions. And that might mean and we'll talk a little bit later. I want to talk about a, um, a client who had uh, wants to do a kitchen renovation and sort of where is that money going to come from? And what, what where do we get it? So um, I just wanted to jump into on a, one of our topics here, which was I'll call it the out of town executor or the out of province executor is what I should say. And um, and the reason it's an out of province executor, I got a call this week from uh, an old friend of mine who uh, lives in Nova Scotia, and uh, he was kind enough. He was asked asking me if I would be willing to be his executor, and uh, you know it's often. As the case, people that um, when they're traveling or thinking about traveling, they always think about their wills, etc., and maybe it should be updated or even get one if you don't have one. Well, in this case, he doesn't have a will, and um, so he was in the process of, of getting one. He's meeting with a lawyer, I think, next week. But um, so anyway, he, he's married, but they have no kids, and uh, but they do have three dogs and a cat, and that plays big into their life for sure. Uh, in fact, they've been um, real supporters of. There's a. I don't know if you've heard of a dog. It's called the Coconut Hound. Have you heard of a Coconut Hound? I haven't. So basically, it's a Dominican. It's a Dominican rescue dog. That uh, there's an organization that volunteers to uh, to help out help the dogs in terms of their Dominican and also getting them here to Canada. It's very reasonable. I think it's like 300 bucks. So anyway. He, uh, he and his wife, they actually were foster, foster cared five dogs last year, so they're heavily involved in that organization. They're actually, so they're flying down to the Dominican as part of their volunteer uh, program, the work they're doing. And so uh, the will came up, right? <clears throat> you know, we're always going to die when we travel. And uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> and, yes, 80% uh, are, of wills are actually created just before a trip. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, I was honored that he'd asked me. And, and so, the, of course, the first thing I said is, listen, you know, I, I don't live in Nova Scotia, so it's, it can be very problematic. And he said, yeah, I know his mom is actually out in uh, British Columbia in Victoria, so she's out of province, and she's too old to be doing it anyway. And his brother's in Seattle, so if you have a uh, an executor or a power of attorney that's out of the country, that is uh, probably the worst case scenario. It's not that it can't be done, but it's probably the least favorable uh, scenario. Uh, so if you're out of province and you are an executor, you typically have to post uh, a bond, a security bond, roughly for the value of the state assets. And this would typically be, in Ontario anyway, if somebody has over $200,000, it's estimated to be over $200,000 in terms of their estate, you would have to get a security bond. So all of these things take time, there are extra efforts, there's extra costs. So I said, listen, I'm honored to do it, um, but here's maybe what we could think about. Why don't, you know, of course, make your your wife would be an executor, I think. And, and although he said that she's really not very astute and into these things, so it would be, she would have to seek advice anyway. But I said, well, you could make her uh, joint with me, so make her as the uh, then if, uh, as the main executor, and I could be joint, and then I could pitch in and help as needed. Um, or you could make um, um, the contingent. So the wife would be, his wife would be the main executor, and if she couldn't do it or wasn't willing to do it, then they could call upon me to help out, which, you know, I'd probably you know, have to fly down to, to Nova Scotia to sort of assess the, whole, the situation and deal with um, many of the institutions and paperwork, etc. So 
when you're thinking about your, your executor, um, you know, uh, that contingent executor or joint, joint executors as well, it's a number of different options there. But try and avoid the out-of-province ones, if at all possible, and particularly out-of-country. So again, you know, Don and I are not lawyers, but um, we come across this. We re- our organization reviews and has a will uh, and power of attorney advisory service. So we can uh, we do we, we see a lot of wills. We see a lot of power of attorneys, and our organization is able to uh, give feedback on some of the the good things and bad things about people's wills. But actually, that brought up another point, which of course is that my friend did not have a power of attorney, and uh, so. <laughs> So no power of attorney as well, and um, and just, you know, everybody, there's two power of attorneys that we deal with, and of course, power of attorney deals with everything while you're still alive, but uh, you're incapacitated. Well, it's it's interesting, you know, it's they do go hand in hand, as you mentioned, Andy, is where if they don't have a will, likely they don't have a power of attorney, and and, and the other way also, but I would suggest because people do have a will doesn't necessarily mean they also have power of attorneys. And so yeah, they should go hand in hand, but they, I would suggest most people are look, linking them now as time goes on. In the last 10 years, they, they do realize that they need both documents. Well, at first I was concerned that he was going to, he was just doing like a will kit or something online. Right. And when I heard, when I heard that he was going to see a lawyer next week, I figured, well, at least that the power of attorney will be brought up. And I'm hope, but I, but anyway, we had a power of attorney discussion and um, so, as I mentioned, there's two type of personal care. Now, when you sign a personal care power of attorney, this is for like a health care directive. This document is only able, only able to enact a power of attorney for personal care once you can't make your own decisions. All right. Now, conversely, the, the power of attorney for property, it can be immediate. In other words, as soon as you sign it, you, that document is now fully uh, active, and it can be used to deal with your financial affairs. But often, some people will use a springing power of attorney. A springing power of attorney, so it might be a future date. So let's say, for example, you know you're going to be out of the country on extended business or trip for three months. You might give some power of attorney for three months, and then when it, at the end of that period, it's over. You might give someone power of attorney only if you're proved, proven to be incapacitated. And that can be problematic in the sense that, um, you know, that uh, is everybody, we're not often that willing to admit that we're not, that we don't have capacity. You know, we, we tend to think that we're still doing well, whereas others from looking from the outside in would realize that maybe not so much. So we talked about, um, you know, I think in his case that having an immediate uh, general power of attorney for property made sense. He doesn't need to worry about a springing power of attorney. Uh, or a contingent power of attorney in case of incapacity, or proof of incapacity. And um, so, uh, you know, I applauded I, I him for getting the, uh, the, the documents in order, and we just had a quick chat about things to prepare before you go see your lawyer when you're talking about your will, and obviously who those executors is going to be is a key one. And then arriving with a list of your assets, basically like a net worth statement, what you owe, what you own, um, and the value of certain uh, value of the items that you have in terms of contents or any special items that you may have, and then of course the list or the, the sort of how you want to have your estate divided, assuming that if something happened to both of them, who's going to look after the cats, the cat and the dogs, right? Because that was I said to him right away that was going to be a key part of uh, of figuring it out. He said, "Well, we have somebody, a, a young neighbor, who's been 
helping us for uh, a number of years now, so she would be first on our list. But uh, yeah, <laughs> so anyway, well, five uh, coconut hounds is a is a definitely you, you better ask the person first. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, they've been the foster parents, so those have left to new homes. So uh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, and it's a great program for 300 bucks. You can get yourself a, uh, your own coconut hound already spayed or neutered, and uh, they'll meet you at the airport with the dog. <laughs> a coconut hound, is it a breed like a golden doodle? It's a couple of things together? or Yeah, we really shouldn't call it a breed. It's, just a, uh, <laughs> it's what we used to call a Heinz 57, right? It's there you go, yeah. Of everything. That's right. In our days, it was a mutt. Uh, we <laughs> are planning. That's right. Hey, it's not a pet show. We're planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message. They'll get back to you at 905-529-7165 and check out their website at andyanddon.com. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call them now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. There you can ask a question via the listener inquiry button. As well, listen to old archive shows. We're going to talk about predictions from last year and whether they came true or not. <laughs> well, it's kind of funny. I, start, I did this last year also, and it turned out of, out of all the predictors last year, I found one that was close, um, I think out of like eight. Uh, most of them in 2019 felt it was going to be a negative year and ended up being the best year since 2013. So then... Coming into 2020, how did people predict things? Now, of course, nobody predicted there would be a pandemic. So i got to oh, give them that. Kidding. No, exactly. <laughs> Zero out of eight. Okay. Zero out of all the predictors felt there was going to be a pandemic. But had they thought there was a pandemic, I have a feeling they probably would have been even more wrong. Because looking at their predictions, the one that they got right was to expect more volatility in 2020. And... So, yes, I, you know, and most of it was because the U.S. was heading into an election year. And they thought, you know, based on that alone, you can expect more volatility in the stock market. Well, what does that really mean? Who knows? The fact it goes up and down, there is a, a measure of volatility, but it doesn't really tell you, point to the performance of the year. So then there was the next prediction, and it said stock markets won't reach highs again. Basically, they hit an all-time high in 2019 and don't expect them to do it again in 2020. Well, I do, it was interesting. I did have a few clients heading into 2020, basically a year ago, and they were saying, you know what, I've been talking to people and I, would like, I think we should move everything to cash. This had nothing to do with the pandemic. It was simply based on the fact that things have been on a roll for a few years. So, you know what, let's move it to cash, which... I, did, I talked them out of it. They, uh, you know, realized that it's, it's never good to time the market after. And we'll, we'll go over some of the statistics with that. But it had nothing to do with um, anything else than the fact that, you know what, we've been doing pretty good, so let's kind of cash in, which that is always the worst idea. So the idea there was stock markets won't hit, reach the highs again, and they did. 
we uh, they they actually hit the U.S. hit an all-time high in February the nineteenth, and of course the pandemic kind of hit at that time, and the markets went down thirty-four percent in thirty-three days in the U.S. and thirty-seven percent in Canada, but then the U.S. hit all-time market um, highs again come six months less a day later, sometime in August. So, and right through to the end of 2020, they continued to hit all-time highs. So those people definitely got that one wrong. Um, Politics will impact the markets. Well, that one I always find is one that generally is untrue. As much as, you know, at the time, earlier in the year, they're talking about Bernie Sanders potentially getting the becoming the next president. And what would that do being a left-wing kind of atmosphere? On the other hand, and also I guess the other one was the Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren would also have an impact. But if Trump got in, then there'd be the unpredictability of Trump. And so, you know, they, they said those, those two areas will give some yin and yang. As it turned out, I guess, the fact that Biden did get in is uh, it actually, the markets did kind of go up a fair bit after that point. So, there, I guess there's some truth to that, but for the most part, politics had very little impact on the stock markets. And what they did say, though, investors should focus on fundamentals. This was another prediction. Uh, enough of going with the growth stocks, which would be more of the tech stocks. Look at the ones that have fundamentals, the value stocks, because they were kind of out of favor, and they're going to be coming back into favor. So those were, is where you should invest your money in 2020. Turned out nothing could be further from the truth. The growth stocks went on a massive run, particularly some that we really didn't hear much of going into 2020. Um, things like Peloton, which is an exercise bike, the uh, uh, DocuSign, so that you could do business without having to use mail anymore or paper. So as it turned out, the stay-at-home stocks, which are predominantly value stocks, um, sorry, were predominantly growth stocks, did extremely well. And the value stocks, such as the banks, did, did poor. In fact, last year, the growth stocks in the U.S. averaged just over 30%, and the value stocks did negative 2 in the U.S., even though the return was about 15%. So huge um, change there between the two. And, of course, whoever made this prediction would have, and, and, and if people listened to this prediction, even worse, would have uh, lost a lot of money. And just rather than keeping kind of a, even a mix between the two, you would have at least got about 15%. Um, you know, temper your expectations in the markets. I could always say, I think that's a, a fairly lame ex, um, prediction because I think you could say that every year. Every year they always say, you know, you shouldn't expect great things this year. Um, so I, I would suggest, you know, that one's just a, Kind of a nice, nice approach. You should always have, I guess, low expectations in the markets. But they never, none of these predictors always talk about the long run. As, as Andy mentioned earlier, is if you look at the long run, you're going to be right. Markets do very well in the long run. It's the year by year that we just don't know. And again, we want to know these things. It just doesn't work that, that way. So they did look at the S&P 500 would likely be in the 5% range. Now, had they had known there's going to be a pandemic thrown into that mix, I doubt they would have even said 5%. I would have suggested, I would have thought most people would have said it would have been a negative year. 
And as it turns, the S&P 500 did, as I mentioned, 15% last year. So these predictions are all great, but I would suggest they're more interesting, something to read, but not really take any advice from. Because the problem with expert predictions is the stock market is, is they're generally wrong. Uh, the future is uncertain. We shouldn't really expect anyone to predict it. And the problem with investors who listen to these isn't really the fact that they're listening to these predictions, is if they act on them. And if you act on predictions, you know, it could be very costly. And this is where we've talked about before the behavioral part of investors. Generally speaking, they don't do as well because they're reacting to a lot of news, a lot of noise. And the ones that do extremely well are the ones that just follow the plan. They do what they should do. They listen to their financial advisor, and the results are, are far better. And it's, it's, it may be simple to do that, but in reality, it's difficult. So I know Andy has talked about this, these stack charts before, where they have all the way from, say, minus 50% in 1931, and then they have little bands, and they stack up all the years. In fact, 2018 was negative 4%. But then 2019, and this is the U.S., was positive 29% in the S&P. And so they stack up all these charts. And you'll see at the far edges, they don't happen too often, um, between minus 20% um, percent all the way to minus 50. Very few years are that way. On the same token, there's very few years that are over 30%. But generally speaking, two-thirds of the years are positive, one-third are negative. So as it turns out, if you just had a, a weighted coin and it simply landed two-thirds positive or, say, two-thirds on heads and one-third on tails, that would be a better predictor than any of these experts because it literally is um, a, a bit of a crapshoot that way. And, and the person that used this analogy said it absolutely is the case. Just throw the two-headed, <laughs> the uh, weighted coin, and if it lands on, on up, Two-thirds of the time, that's probably going to be it. Because they, they looked at all the years from 1928, 65% of them were positive, literally two-thirds. If the president was Republican or whether the president was Democrat, 64%, it was up with a Democrat, or sorry, a Republican, and 68 with a Democrat. Really, no difference at all. Um, <laughs> If the year ended with even versus an odd, 64% and 67%, all these things really don't matter too much. And when, if the year before, this was interesting, a lot of people think that if the year before was negative, therefore it's going to be a great year the next year. Well, it turns out that if the market was down 10% the previous year, 58% it went up the next year. Okay, so we're again close to that two-thirds. If the market... Um, was up 20% the previous year. You'd think, well, maybe it's going to be down next year. Well, actually, 64%, it was up the next year. Again, everything tracked to this two-thirds. So no matter what the news was, or, or like Annie and I like to call it, the noise, it turned out that it really didn't end up mattering a whole lot. So I always liked uh, Warren Buffett's quote, we felt... We've long felt that the only value of stock forecasters is to make fortune tellers look good. Even now, Charlie and I continue to believe the short-term market forecasts are, are poison. 
and should be kept locked up in a safe place, away from children, and also from grown-ups, grown-ups that behave like children when it comes to the market. So, as, it, as, it, as we mentioned, it's a long-term plan, and experts are generally wrong. And they actually are wrong even more when you want them the most. And that's when the market's down. So they, they looked at the S&P 500 with 6,600 forecasts, all the way from 2002 to 2018. And if you looked at that, about half the time, they were within 10% of the actual return. The other half the time, they were off by more than 10%. In two years out of those 17 years, they were off by more than 40%. Which, again, this is using 6,600 forecasters. In two out of those 17 years, they were off by over 40%. So, again, the whole point is it's always nice to take a look at these more out of curiosity, but it really doesn't help you a whole lot. And it really comes down to we're not, it's really not in our DNA to do well when it comes to the, mar- the markets because we like to know certainty, and it actually helps us. It, 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 it gives us a, more of a shot of, of a, a drug basically in our system that makes us feel uncertain. Um, then if we are certain and somebody gives us, okay, this is what the markets are going to do, then we feel better. It's a shot of dopamine. And so, like I said, we're, it's right in our DNA not to do very well when it comes to the markets. And I'm sure, Andy, you've probably had your, your stories of people that have questioned you on some of these forecasts. Well, I think the, um, you know, I, I'm going to share a story about uh, a client who wanted to do this kitchen renovation. And, um, and so as you start thinking about where is the money going to come from to do it, and um, and I was trying to, and this is where I think it takes a lot of advice um, in the area of, uh, you know, how do you, what investments do you sell? But what I was getting at is that I think in terms of like an asset allocation model and what an asset allocation model does, it basically dictates like a recipe, how much of each ingredient you're going to have. Don's talked about growth stocks and value stocks, U.S., Canadian, geographically, and um so when you ask people, you know, would you rather sell the investments that are uh, that are doing well or the investments that are doing poorly? Quite often, people like to get rid of the losers. They don't want to get. They don't want to sell their winners. And uh, but in in essence, if you think about how investments have done in the last even the last year, um, that you would have to take, probably have to sell. U.S. growth stocks, as Don was just talking about, they've been the best performing category. So now you have to tell people, well, sell your sell your winners, sell some of your winners to raise the capital. And what that'll do is it'll put your asset allocation model back into the back to the recipe that you originally started with. And um, but we but we're sort of like rubber bands, and uh, in the sense that our our willingness to take on risk gets stretched in different directions when we hear this news about things doing well or things might do poorly and we're we're emotionally, as Don said, sort of psychologically, but we're emotionally not wired to make good decisions when it comes to making these investment choices and that comes with selling things too. And uh, 
So it's yeah, it's fascinating to me that uh, how people will push back at trying to either rebalance a portfolio, you know, taking profit from things that have done well and buying things that are down right now, um, because our our risk profile tends to rubber band based on what's going on in the economy, what we're hearing on the radio or what we're hearing in TV and what we're reading in the papers about uh, investments and the investment predictions, right? And, and yes, absolutely. I mean, it's always that fear and greed. So if, you're, if the growth areas are doing extremely well, we, don't, we get greedy. We don't, we don't want to sell those to rebalance our portfolio. And then yeah. when the markets are doing lousy, the fear kicks in. And, and that uh, um, basically it's, a, it's a cortisol is released. It makes us feel stress, not knowing what's going to happen in the future. And again, having that certainty, or if the markets go up and you happen to do well, you, you get that shot of dopamine. So it was interesting, a CIO, a chief investment officer, after, you know, off the record, and he said, and this is actually very common, he actually mentioned that he or anybody, nobody in his firm actually believes that anybody can predict the market. And this is after giving a forecast of what they expect. They, they only do so, they only give these forecasts because clients weren't happy unless they gave them these predictions and, su- and suggestions on how to tweak their portfolios in response and then therefore response to these predictions. And this has been a normal occurrence. People do like to read these and they like to think, okay, how should I set up my portfolio based on what's going on in the world right now? At the end of the day, it's all about having a plan a balanced portfolio also, the investment part of your plan should be a balanced portfolio that is within your comfort zone that will meet your goals. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. Call now, leave a message. They'll get back to you as soon as they can at 905-529-7165. And check out their website at andyanddon.com. There you can listen to old archive shows and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Well, during a pandemic, there's not much to do, so the honey-do list seems to be getting bigger. A lot of people doing renovations, and uh, you got some advice for them. Yeah, that's just, you know, we're talking about people saving money earlier and, or spending less, and, and the winner in all of this is the home renovation uh, um, <laughs> companies because uh, I've certainly had a lot of uh, interest from clients about uh, financing various projects they've got going on around the house. And the most recent one, the kitchen reno, that somebody was looking to get uh, $70,000 as part of a project they've got coming up or dreaming about. And, um, you know, and, and so I think it's, as I said earlier, you know, when Don and I put together a financial plan for somebody, we always look at a comprehensive solution. And in the financial planning world, there are really six key elements to everyone's financial plan. It's your managing your cash flow efficiently. It's preparing for the unexpected. It's planning for major expenditures. It would be maximizing your business success. It would be optimizing your retirement and then finally sharing your wealth or estate planning. And so 
of those six things is sort of this idea of I want to spend 70 grand on a kitchen renovation sort of falls into that planning for major expenditures. And um, so more often than not, Don and I don't hear about these major expenditures until it's time they want to do it. Yeah, exactly. All of a sudden, yeah. yeah, I've already put it on my line of credit. <laughs> yeah, but in many cases, if we can do some planning ahead, it makes sense. So, you know, when you think about today's environment, and uh, we talked about the stock market, et cetera, things look, do look well in the sense that we've got low interest rates, you know, jobs have rebounded, but we're still recovering from that still, you know, we're strong immigration still. So in the long term, your plan is basically on track. It's these short-term decisions, these short-term gyrations, and, and, a, and a major expenditure like this is sort of a short-term purchase. Some people, it might be a new car they've got to replace, maybe it's a vacation property you're thinking about, maybe it's just a, like a roof on your house, but you've got, then you've got to access some cash. And so for most people, where do we get this money? Do we go into debt to do it? So as John said, it could be a line of credit, maybe that's short term, maybe you finance it. So if it's a car, you might finance it at a low rate over a period of time and use your cash flow to pay for it. Um, maybe you can use your cash flow from just saving more to be able to reach the goal for the project, or maybe you have to cash in investments. And that's where we were at this stage for, for this decision. And uh, it made sense to take some profits right now. And we Tom was talking about some of the growth we've seen in the markets in various sectors over the last uh, 12 months. So being able to take some profit from your investments is, you know, is an interesting way. And there's a lot of different decisions to be made around that. So we basically just get the request, I need 70 grand. What happens is Don and I go back to our drawing board and we'll spend a couple of hours looking at all the different options that are available to get that cash out. Um, obviously capital gains, capital losses, and tax issues. But this is where a lot of advice like in this area can make a big difference in terms of how, how much you end up with and how much tax you pay as well. And as I said earlier, we want to take into account your asset allocation model. This might be a way to rebalance. We have to get that cash out. Where do we take it from? We take it from the sectors that have grown beyond their normal amounts in terms of your recipe, and we can teeter those back a little bit to make sure that they're more in line with the overall asset mix that we're trying to accomplish. But this is the pushback that we get, often get, right? We say, well, you know, Scott, should people sell their winners or should they sell the losers? Should they sell their U.S. stuff, which is doing well, or, key, or sell their Canadian stuff? And so um, people are very rubber band on this. And I kind of think about it. You've got, if you think about a rubber band, like an elastic band, and you think about a rubber tire, each of those have a different ability to stretch, right? And um, the rubber tire, you know, it's pretty hard to get that to go anywhere further than it is. You can move it one direction or the other a little bit. But a rubber band or elastic band, you can kind of go all over the place. So I think what people need to focus on is you want to be not so much rubber band, a little more rubber tire, and, uh, and stick to your, um, don't go too far beyond your risk profile. So, um, you know, trying to kind of convince people or talk around those concepts, uh, it's fear and greed that come into play, but at the end of the day, if we can stick to a plan, stick to your asset allocation model, it will really help take the emotion out of the decisions as well. So now over the years, Don, we, we, I've been using and we've both been using um, one of our key uh, investment products and really the world, the, the wealth management world has changed dramatically and we've been at the forefront of it. We started a product, we call it our iProfile Private Portfolios. And we've been doing that for over 15 years now. But this model has really become sort of the standard in the industry. And basically what we do is we go out, we don't, money, we don't uh, manage money anymore. 
we go out and we find the best people in the world to manage money. And then we build a portfolio based on your risk profile using those money managers and their expertise. And these are great names from all around the world. It could be uh, here in Canada, Jaroslavski Fraser looks after investments for Canadian or Canadian equities or Canadian value. They're one of the biggest pension managers in here in Canada. Great track record. Mackenzie Financial as well. In the U.S., Putnam Investments, Panagora for core um, <clears throat> alternative investments, Aristotle Capital, used for small cap investments, International, BlackRock, the world's largest money manager, Wellington Capital, JP Morgan handles our emerging markets, as well as a, a new partner, China AMC, one of the largest, sort of the BlackRock of China, one of the largest money managers in China. And uh, on the fixed income side, PIMCO, the largest bond manager in the world. And, uh, of course, an IG Private, wealth fits into there as well. We have our own direct ownership, or private equity, we call it. We have a real estate portfolio that we've been managing for a number of years with clients. So building a portfolio around that, having a model, for don't get too elastic band away from your model, stick to your plan, and uh, it will really help dictate where that money can come from. But we're, we're here to help people figure out What's the best strategy when it comes to paying for those major expenditures? We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. 905-529-7165. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call them now and leave a message. They'll return your call at 905 905- 529-7165, and check out the website at andyanddon.com, andyanddon.com. All right, uh, obviously during the pandemic, we're all, or a lot of us, uh, those that can, are working from home, but there's some things you need to know about this moving forward. Yes, and, and I'm going to get to the tax, um, the benefits from working from home in a second, but just to piggyback on what Andy had mentioned, you, you know, I, it's funny, Andy, last week I also spoke to a client and they took, got windows and they did some miscellaneous renovations and there was about $40,000 of debt they put onto their line of credit. Now, one option, as you mentioned, is you could cash in and rebalance the portfolio, cash in the winners, and that would likely trigger a capital gain. But the other option is uh, to use that line of credit. First of all, take the investments, pay off, pay off the loan, then turn around, borrow from the line of credit and buy back the investments. Because Right now, with interest rates so low, and most line of credits are prime plus a quarter, you could borrow up 2.7%. And therefore, if you then took that money and put it back in the investments, the loan is now tax deductible. And if you're in a, you know, say a medium tax bracket, you are now going to be borrowing at about 1.5%, even less possibly. And, and, and more than likely, your investments will outperform that. So that's just another alternative to how to pay for that renovation. Now, going back to working from home, here we are 10 months later, and certainly after this last week of uh, more lockdown news, there's no end in sight. And so the government has really come into two different camps on how much you can write off by working at home. And one is kind of your, you know, in the past, in the kind of the previous pre-pandemic, as uh, Scott, uh, you've mentioned before, that T2200 form. 
and your employer simply signs that and you get to write off certain things because you work at home. Now, there's this new up, up to, and I have to circle up to $400 deduction for those that have a few costs, but not a ton of costs. And if you had over, say, $400 worth of expenses, then you would have to fill in a, a different simplified form of that T2200. So, so really you have to decide which one is the best route to go. And is it really worthwhile to really go after uh, more expenses? So if you're basically told you have to work from home, you first of all have to look at, did you work from home due to the pandemic for at least 50% of the time for a period of four consecutive weeks? For most people, that would, have apl- would apply. So that's how you get to claim anything at all, including that $400. Now, that is not $400 up front. Hey, yes, I hit that. I get to claim $400. That doesn't work quite that way. It actually is $2 per day, up to $400. So therefore, you then have to add up how many days you worked from home and add them up, and then you get to claim that. Now, this is an actual tax deduction, not a tax credit. So depending on your tax, um, your tax bracket, this will actually save you more. You know, it definitely saves you more or at least the same as a tax credit. Because if you are in a higher income and you say in a 50% tax bracket, that $400 deduction saves you $200. And as, a, as a credit, it would only save you $100 in terms of in your pocket. Now, you will need this uh, a form. It's called a, a T. 777S. Now, it's a work-from-home version of the T777. It's a simplified version, so that needs to be done. Um, Basically, also, for those that are going to be claiming a lot more, you need to fill in this new form, a T2200S. Now, S stands for simplified. And so, basically, making it a little easier than what they did in previous years, and Again, either way, you do need your employer to sign a form to say that you, were, you, you did have to work from home. Now, what can you claim? Well, everybody can claim rent, utility bills, Internet, uh, and you may want to also look at phone bills. Now, you, what you want to look at, though, is what percentage of your home or apartment or condo did you use um, for an office. Now, this is where it's kind of tricky. Do you actually need four walls around your office? No, you don't. If you're working from your kitchen table this whole pandemic, you still just look at how big is the kitchen and how much square footage were you using basically as your office. So if it was 30% of your, your living area, then you get to claim 30% of your rent, 30% of utility bills, 30% of internet costs. Now, phone bills, you'd actually want to look at how many of your you know, your phone calls were work-related and how much were personal, because likely it would be more than that 30%, or it could have been. Um, things such as paper, paper, printer ink, cleaning supplies, light bulbs, those would be 100% deductible because they're used directly for your office space. Now, if you're commissioned, self-employed, you, it's kind of interesting, you get to then look at property taxes as, as something you would get to claim. Home insurance. Even phone and computer leases, those do not apply to employees. 
It's kind of interesting where an employee can claim a percentage of rent, but they can't claim a percentage of property taxes. So it does lean towards somebody that's a tenant rather than a homeowner for that expense. So at the end of the day, you don't need a, any proof for that $400 that these expenses actually occurred. They're not going to audit you and say, okay, um, let's see what your costs were, and therefore you get a percentage because it is $2 a day regardless. But if you are claiming for the more, say, aggressive one, then you have to have some proof. And most people, most experts agree you should keep those receipts for up to six years. We recommend literally taking pictures and filing them somewhere and just putting them under a file in your computer saying here are your receipts for certain years. And that there will help you claim for the ex- the very interesting year we had in 2020. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from IG Private Wealth Management. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. Have a great week. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Scott. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.